0: Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. So far, um, in the last couple chapters especially, we have seen uh, Jesus dealing with two very significant changes in the ministry environment that he's had to deal with. Um, The crowds have gotten much larger. We talked about this the last couple weeks. Um, Now we've got crowds from you know, north, south, and east, well beyond the borders of Israel, you know, can't say west because that's the ocean, Um, but the other three sides, crowds from clear across the borders are coming in to listen to him, and the opposition has changed significantly, Um, it's now becoming wider, opposition from as far away as Jerusalem, and it's becoming more focused, uh, the opposition to Jesus' ministry has moved from the research phase to the stop him phase. They're literally trying to stop him by one means or another in, in his tracks. So there's quite a bit changing in the environment in which Jesus is ministering. And it's in that, that light that we look at the event that closes out chapter 4. So Mark chapter 4, we're going to begin reading a really well-known, well-known event uh, in the 35th verse. Mark writes, On that day... When evening had come, he said to them, Let's go over to the other side. And leaving the multitude, they took him along with him, just as he was in the boat. And the other boats, our other boats, were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so much that the boat was already filling up. And he himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and said, Teacher, do you not care? We're perishing. Being aroused, he rebuked the wind and the sea, Hush, be still." The wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, why are you so timid? How is it that you have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey? And Father, we thank you for the gift we have. As Leah instructed us in worship, to gather in, in the weeness, the us, the body of Christ. We have such a gift that you have made available to us. You've called us into, Lord, and we want to be wise this morning to take full advantage of that. We want to be wise this morning with ears ready to hear your word, Father, and in its uh, in, its, in its opening, in its sharing, we pray that your spirit, Lord, would have his way completely. We want to hear from you, Lord. Simple as that. Amen. Amen. Well, the point of this story is, is crystal clear. Jesus' absolute authority even over the forces of nature, right? It's a critical point. Matthew and, and Luke also record this event, but there are some additional details in this story we also want to make, make note of, consider them. So that's what we like to do this morning. Look at the event, note the main thing. we we'll keep the main thing, the main thing, as we like to say. Also notice these additional points, and then finally uh, draw the whole episode together into a whole. First, you know, the main thing. Verse 31, rather, verse 35, as Jesus is still speaking to the crowd, and this um, is evidently um, the same passage, the the same event as clear back at the the first verse when Jesus got into the boat, moved off the beach so he could speak to the crowd. I'm over in chapter 5, chapter 4, sorry. Same event as in verse 1. And in verse 35, as they draw to the evening, Jesus tells the disciples it's time to go over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, a trip of about eight miles, not a real big journey. Uh, Verse 36 points out a couple of different things we should be mindful of. They left immediately, and there's this phrase, just as he was. Uh, It would suggest that Jesus has finished speaking, period, on the end of the sentence, time to go. Like they didn't even go back ashore, to go back to the house to get their stuff. Jesus has been so pressed on by the crowds, the beach is full of people, huge throng of people, that they don't even go ashore. They just turn the boat out toward the sea, and, and they're gone, just left. Kind of a get-out-of-dodge moment, if you will. And the second thing to note in this um, 36 verse is their boat wasn't the only one. And boy, that raises all kinds of questions. What about this reference to the other boats? Well, just hold that thought, we'll come back to it, right? Verse 37, a fierce gale descends upon the Sea of Galilee. And it's, it's a term, the term that is used is a very old term. goes all the way back to Homer. And in Homer's Iliad, he uses this term to describe a wind that has the capacity to literally rip a tree out by the roots. Some scholars, um, and I use that word loosely, Um, in an effort to minimize the miraculous nature of what Jesus has done, have suggested that it really wasn't that big of a windstorm, you know. Because the boat that he was in... A uh, typical large Galilean fishing boat would have been 25 to 30 feet long and take up to 15 people. Well, you put 13 in it, you got a pretty full load. Jesus and the 12, which would have meant the boat was you know, settling down in the water. Therefore, it wouldn't have taken that much of a wind chop to fill it. It's just really elaborate construct that you read if, if you look hard enough. And that's nonsense. This is a major gale. Again, Homer used the word to describe something that could literally rip trees from their roots. Uh, When the word is used in the Septuagint Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's used in places like Job, describing when God spoke to him out of the whirlwind. So this is not a light, pleasant breeze. This is a serious, serious storm. To understand the storm, we have to talk just a little bit about the geography of the Sea of Galilee. If you know your Middle Eastern geography, you'll know this. The Sea of Galilee sits in a deep, deep bowl. The surface of the Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. And it's surrounded by mountains that are as high as 2,500 feet, so you've got above sea level. So you've got a pretty serious drop from the tops of the surrounding mountains down to the Sea of Galilee. And what happens is you get the the hot, dry air coming in from the desert side, the eastern side, and it, it, it mixes with the cold or colder damp air coming off the Mediterranean. And when that happens, that hot, dry desert air suddenly gets really heavy. It's colder so it's heavier, and now it's got moisture in it, so it's heavier, and when it gets cold and damp and gets heavy, it wants to drop. So you have this major wind coming in from east and west, and both of it, it's looking for some place to go. Well, here's a bowl, Sea of Galilee, and it drops down into the Sea of Galilee. And especially if it comes from the west, if the predominant wind force is from the west, because the mountains on the eastern side are fairly steep, more like cliffs, but the mountains on the western side had this long slope. Well, if you just kind of get the visual of it, you've got this massive air being driven straight down, and it wants to keep going down, but now it has to go horizontally, horizontally as well as vertically so it speeds up, kind of the opposite of a wing concept. The air will speed up, so you get these sudden rushes of wind coming off the slopes, blowing over the lake, and the lake can get really nasty. This is not just historical. Just last year, uh, the town of Tiberias, which is a kind of a touristy community right on the coast, um, had their entire boardwalk. And don't think wooden boardwalk. This is a cement boardwalk with steel rails. It just wiped the whole boardwalk out. The waves coming in as a result of one of these winds. So it's pretty serious. A few years back, a little farther back, Tiberias had 10-foot waves in the middle of town. So, these, these storms on the Sea of Galilee can really, really get serious, right? And um, the kind of thing you just have to deal with if you live in that part of the world, right? So, in the case of, of the event here in Mark, we've got waves breaking over the boat so much that the boat is already filling up. It's real visual, it happens fast. Waves suddenly come up, boats suddenly being filled up. Um, the disciples are getting worried. They're getting worried. Now, of course, four of the disciples are fishermen. This is their lake. They know it. So you can kind of, you know, just use your imagination a little bit and kind of fill out the picture. You've got the disciples and Jesus in the boat, and the winds are starting, and the eight guys that aren't fishermen, they're getting nervous, you know, and the fishermen are trying to be cool fishermen. So that happens all the time. Just don't worry. And the winds pick up a little more, and now the boat's filling up, and now the the four fishermen are getting worried. So the other eight guys are really getting worried because now the fishermen are worried. So you can just imagine how this would have, you know, it's kind of snowballed. But Jesus is what? He is asleep in the stern. He is out cold. I mean, if, with this kind of winds, we've got lots of spray and foam, you know, blowing. This kind of wind blowing waves into the boat, and literally the waves and the terminologies are being thrown in the boat. It's not just lapping gently over the side. It's coming in. He's bound to be wet. He's bound to be getting spray in the face, and he is sound asleep through it all. It's an amazing picture of Jesus' humanity. So completely exhausted by an entire day of speaking to the multitudes, because he started in the morning, went clear until evening. He is exhausted to the point that he's laying in the back of the boat, out like a light, right? The disciples, concerned that their end is near, they wake him up with a very thinly veiled accusation, do you not care that we perish, which is a nice way of saying, you don't care that we're perishing, right? I know none of you have ever said that to God. None of, none of you have ever said, God, you don't care, right? I have, yeah. In fear and anxiety and worry, this seems like, where is God? God must be asleep. Don't you care? Verse 39 is absolutely beautiful. It says, um, he woke him, or he himself was in the stern and sleep on the kitchen, on the cushion, rather, and they awoke him, literally being aroused, verse 39. Now that word that is used for being aroused when they woke him up, that's a word with a wide variety of meanings. It can mean simply to wake up. Or it can mean to get really mad, get really agitated, to be energized and motivated. Now, there's absolutely nothing in the text to tell us which way Jesus is going at this moment. So I would leave that entirely to your own speculation, right? Don't know. Is he simply waking up? Or is, you know how you are when you want to, be, when you want to sleep and you get woke up, and you woke up by something they shouldn't have woke you up for? Yeah, you know how that is. So, so he's somewhere in that, in that dynamic, right? And we should know, this, it's not two things here. It's not they woke him up, and then he rebuked the wind and the waves. No, it's in the process of being awakened, like he's still being awakened, rubbing the, you know, the sleep from his eyes, that he turns to the wind and says, stop it. Now, it was a couple of weeks back, we had Jesus talking to a demon and he used the term, that meant put a muzzle on it, right? This isn't that one, but it's equally colorful. This is a phrase that meant Jesus expressed to the wind its relative place and value compared to himself. He literally put the wind in its place. Let's be mindful who's who here, right? So just chill, quiet, stop it. The phrase he used with regard to the waves is another very powerful phrase. It's the um, essential equivalent of zip it. Like, just stop. So he, tells the, he reminds the wind who's who. He tells the waves to stop it, and everything goes calm. It's a beautiful expression. The word is galini megali. It just sounds like what it is. Just... Galini Megali. And what's extraordinary is Jesus uses a verb that describes not the external condition or the physical state, but the actual state of being. The Sea of Galilee itself became this magnificent calm. And we've probably all been out there, but you've been out on the water when it's just calm. It's almost an eeriness to it. It's just Nothing's moving. There's no wind, there's no wave, not a ripple. Where moments before, the wind was howling and the waves were filling the boat. I would describe it as a two-tiered miracle. Two-tiered miracle. Um, The first with regards to the wind, I just think for a moment where wind comes from. Why do we have wind? Why do we have it in the first place? Well, we have it, of course, because God in his his wisdom created this thing called earth, which is land and sea. And the land's not entirely flat. It's got irregular bumps and things in it and valleys. And then this, this is water, which is various depth. And he took this earth that's got land and water, and he stuck it in front of a massive thermonuclear reactor, the sun and you take a planet of earth and land covered with atmosphere, and you put it in front of the sun, and the sun pounds it with energy, weird stuff's going to happen. And that's all weather is. All weather is in any of its forms is the planet responding to the enormous amount of energy that's being imparted to it by the sun. And so the wind patterns that, that flow across the surface of the earth as they encounter mountains and valleys and the heating and the cooling and all that stuff that's going on, driven by this incredible nonstop importation of energy. It's a global thing. So when Jesus turns to the wind in one particular spot and says, stop, what happened? What happened to all that energy coming in off the desert that was driving the hot, dry air, and all that energy that was coming in off the sea, driving the cooler, damp air, com- causing them to compress together, form a mass, and driving it, driving it by force, down into the bowl that is the, Medi- that is the Sea of Galilee. Where'd that energy go? Did Jesus go blow someplace else? Extraordinary miracle. But then it gets even better, because if you've been on the water, when the wind is blowing and the wind stops, you know that when the wind stops, the waves don't, because there's energy that's been loaded in the waves from the wind, and it takes a while for that energy to dissipate. When I was stationed at Nibe, one of our favorite things to do was surf training where we take our 44, this big 17-ton steel boat that was designed to, you know, go out in waves and roll over and all that stuff. And when we had a really good day with really good breaking surf, we would go out and play in it, right? And playing in it consisted of the chief, who was the knowledgeable guy, and all the new, you know, helmsmen, the new drivers. I was the engineer. I just went along for the ride. But they would go out, and we would go to this one particular beach, which was called Cotilla Beach, had great waves on it surfing in a boat thing and he would go out and he would tell them this is how you do it and he would show them the way to time the incoming waves some you wait and they break in front of you others you have to go through them so they break behind you because you never want them to break on you that's bad and so we would do that for like an hour or so the chief showing them how to do it and then he would say to them get into the chair And and the new guys would get in the chair with the chief right next to him, and we would spend another hour or two with him showing them the right way to handle these waves. And then the best part of all, when we were all done, the chief would get back in the chair, and he'd say, now I'll show you what happens when you do it wrong. And he would pick a medium-sized wave, and he would take that 44-foot boat and put it sideways in the wave. And it would pick that 17-ton steel boat up like a piece of driftwood. And just curious, us. And we all think we're going to end up on the beach, you know. And then at the last minute, the chief would gun the engine and pull out. We'd be fine, right? All of that happened the day after the wind stopped. Because there was no way in the world we were going to go out and do that while the wind was still blowing. But all of that energy that the wind had loaded into the water to create those waves. And that was a little bit different because it was, it was open ocean, so you had tidal and you had current as well. But same principle. All of that energy that had been loaded into the waves took time for the waves to unload. So you'd, we'd often have bigger waves the day after the wind because it just took time for all that energy to unload. So Jesus is in the boat. Miracle number one, he stops the wind. Great! Great! All that energy is still in the water. Where did that go? Incredible demonstration of his mastery even over the laws of nature, which is actually no big deal because it's his laws anyway, right? He made them. So we have gone in a very very short span of time from Jesus, son of Mary, human, exhausted, sound asleep, in the back of the boat, waves splashing over him. He doesn't even wake up. He's so exhausted. In a, in a span of just a few moments to Jesus, Son of God, demonstrating his authority even over wind and wave. Now put yourself in the place of, of the disciples. You're in the boat. You're scared. Really worried. Jesus, right there, but everyone didn't care because he sound asleep. And the boat is sinking, and it's really bad. And um, you wake him up, and at some level of alertness, weakness, he turns, and he rebukes the wind, and then he rebukes the wave, and then he turns to you. Yeah, good time to be at the back of the crowd. What's he going to say? Not so good. He said, um, why are you so timid? Why are you so fearful? Why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith. I think that might have been a, maybe a little tit for tat. You said, I don't care. You insult me, I insult you. You know, you have no faith. He just got done telling them a few verses before if you have just as much faith, a little bit of mustard faith, and you're good, man, you have nothing. Pretty harsh response, right? As a result, verse 41, they became. Very much afraid. Even more afraid. You ever have one of those experiences in life where something happens, maybe in your car or something, where it's really, really scary, and you get through it, and everybody's okay, and everybody's fine, and then you get more scared? Because you have time, the adrenaline's left, you have time to think about what could have happened? And the fear level comes up. I think that's what happened here. Because what the word is phobos, which comes right in English, is phobia, right? Really... Powerful fear that changes our actions. Well, this is used in a redundant form. They literally um, phobost with a great phobos. He uses it twice. An overwhelming kind of a fear grips them. They're now more afraid of the one with whom they're speaking than they were of the wind and the waves. A great fear overcomes them. And they say to one another, who is this that we're dealing with, that even the wind and the waves obey him. I mean, they'd seen him cast out demons. They'd seen him heal the sick. They'd seen him confront the Pharisees and the scribes and just shut those guys down. But this is a whole new ballgame. The very powers of nature bow to his command. It's pretty intense. That's the main point. Jesus demonstrates in a moment both his absolute humanity and his absolute deity. There's a lot there for us. But there's a couple other things we should talk about, a couple other points. Um, I don't know if they're necessarily essential, but they're certainly important. Uh, We mentioned that note in verse 36 about the other boats that went with him. Uh, I did quite a bit of reading on this, and it is like all over the place. There's really no explanation. It just says other boats, and they were smaller. The word is for a smaller boat. When Jesus and the guys left in the boat, smaller boats left with him, we're not told what happened to them. When you get to chapter 5, Jesus and the disciples are on the other side. There's no evidence of the small boats being there. So I don't know. Maybe they, maybe they thought he was just going to go down the beach a ways, and they'd follow. And then they, when they found that he wasn't, he was going across, they went back. Or maybe when he started across and the storm came, they went back. Maybe they followed, didn't make it. Hope not. We don't know. All we know is that some boats followed him, and they are, they're not there when he gets to the other side, right? So if you'll allow me, because there's no, there's no explanation in the text, right? Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you my speculative answer, and I'm even going to mix it with a little algorithm. So there's two strikes against it right there. Um, to me, it's, it's simple. Take it or leave it, because, again, it's just, it's just you know, me. Um, I think Mark is making the point that if you're going to follow Jesus... Make sure you're in the right boat. (laughs) Otis, will that preach? Okay, thank you. I thought I'd check with you. Yeah, If you're going to follow Jesus, make sure you're in the right boat. That's as far as we're going to go with that one, right? The second thing I'd like to talk about, a little bit more about the disciples' response... Even though they were greatly fearful of the wind and the waves such that it caused their faith in Jesus to absolutely collapse. Do you not care? They're overcome with fear. Yet it is when they deal with Jesus in the demonstration of his power. They find themselves saying, who then is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? They're no longer asking themselves, can Jesus do something? What is this man capable of? Now they're asking a much more important question, exactly who is he? Who in the world is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? When you put it all together, the disciples have been with Jesus roughly a year at this point. They've seen healings, unclean spirits cast out, the power with which which Jesus spoke. They've seen people react to his words, his confrontations of scribes and Pharisees. But now they perceive something absolutely different, the laws of nature bowing to his command, and it terrifies them. Now that those waves have quit, the wind has died down, they have a few moments to think about who Jesus is actually is, which is where I think is a good place for us to be. I think it's a good place for us, especially in those moments when, you know, the crisis isn't directly upon us, to think back about those times when the crisis was upon us. We are so quick. To call out to Jesus for his help in that moment of crisis. And then after he, you know, delivers us or saves us or gets us through, we just on our merry way like it never happened, right? There's a tremendous wisdom when he answers our prayers as he does to stop and take the time to ask the question, who is it? Who is this man? And to think about what he has actually done how he has overridden the very laws that govern this universe sometimes, the very laws that he crafted, that he put into place to make life tenable and livable, those very laws, he oftentimes overrides for our benefit. Such is his power. It's sobering, it's sobering if we pay attention at all when the time comes to ask this question, just who am I dealing with here? Who am I dealing with? Such is his power. It's even frightening. But it's also incredibly comforting. Because not only do we see the demonstrations of his power, but the overwhelming demonstrations of his love. The one who spoke all things into order. The one who has our very days in his hands. The one from whom there is no appeal. His word is final, is also the one who loves us with an everlasting love. Redeeming love shall be my song and shall be till I die. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Father, we can read this incident, we can read about this moment with the disciples and um, we see it it and it encourages us, it even stirs us. But Father, if we take a moment... To look a little bit more deeply at what actually happened and asked ourselves perhaps how we might have reacted in that moment. I think we would quite easily find ourselves being among those who said, Lord, don't you care, we're gonna die. Only to find out that there was a far greater, a far greater power to deliver in our midst than we even imagined. Father, as we go through, you know, our weeks, our days, the things we deal with, Lord, we're we're so prone to question rather than simply trust, rather than to simply exercise faith in not just the power of the one with whom we deal, but the love you have for us. And I pray that would be our confidence, Father, the next time, the next time difficulty bangs on our door and comes into our home, the next time illness or sickness or, or, or tragedy in our family, those closest, the next time it happens, Father, that we would be um, quick to remember with whom we deal, who holds us in his hands. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.